Welcome to Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, Zionism versus Judaism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. I'm here with Professor Theodore Postel, who's a world-renowned expert on missiles, retired professor in MIT. And if there's anybody that knows about Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system, it's him. Good morning, Professor Postel. How are you? Well, pleasure to be talking with you. Pleasure to have you. First, tell me, please, this Iron Dome system, how is it different than the old David Sling system, or they used to call it Magic Wand, I think, and why is it so much more well-known? Well, it's, uh, it's a completely different system, which is uh, a missile defense system, which uh, is aimed at trying to intercept artillery rockets. These are rockets that are not... Uh, guided they're, they're fired uh, by you just point them in a direction they don't have guidance systems and uh, they fall under the influence of gravity and aerodynamics their trajectories are highly predictable that's an important thing you, you know you know where they're going to go because one of the big problems they had with patriots in the during the gulf war of 1991 is the Patriot, the Scud missiles were unstable and they were wobbling and they maneuvered, making it impossible for the Patriot to match the maneuvers. So in the case of the artillery rockets, they're very stable, predictable trajectories. They also travel at much lower speeds because they're shorter range than things like Scuds. And that makes the potential for intercepting them seem much higher. Turns out, that it's not higher for reasons I'll discuss. But on first look, you would guess that there would be a much better chance of intercepting these artillery rockets than so far uh, has been demonstrated. So uh, now the interceptors, the Iron Dome interceptors, <clears throat> they are basically modified air-to-air missiles. The uh, Aircraft carry these air-to-air missiles that they fire at other aircraft. And uh, these missiles are very sophisticated. They're extremely sophisticated. And uh, what the Israeli government has done is taken some extraordinarily uh, advanced technology that has been developed by the Israelis. Uh, The uh, Israelis have taken uh, a a very... um, they're very advanced uh, missiles like the uh, Python 5, which is an, uh, an extraordinarily sophisticated and, and capable and deadly. And who invented that? Uh, I, I, the Israelis did it. Mm-hmm. The Israelis have a, a fantastically sophisticated establishment of uh, scientists and engineers. They're superb. I, I've had the privilege of knowing a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they invented this uh, Python 5. The Python 5 was the first missile that you could actually, if you were an airplane uh, coming in at an enemy, you know, you you see an enemy airplane, and because it's difficult to know whether the enemy airplane is an enemy or a friend, the general rule in combat is you want to see the airplane you're going to shoot at if it's an enemy. So what happens is the pilot gets so close uh, to the enemy airplane that they both wind up flying by each other because by the time you can see each other, there's no chance to engage. And so what happens, you then have to turn around and start engaging the adver- the enemy airplane. Mm-hmm. The Python eliminates that need. If you see the plane and you're so close, the Python can be fired at the plane. It will do a 180-degree turn in air 
lock on to the plane that has just passed you, catch up with it, and destroy it. Wow. It's amazing. And, and uh, the technologies involved are extraordinary. The aerodynamics of the Python itself are, are all uh, nonlinear. You know, it had to be worked out in every detail. The guidance system and acquisition system was totally new. So it's, it's a fantastic advance in anti-air uh, capability. Currently, does the United States have missiles like that? The United States now has missiles like that because we've copied from the Israelis and we buy from the Israelis. Okay. So, but the Israelis were the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so they were pioneers in this. And so, uh, and they don't have a lot of the uh, problems that the American system has. In Israel, I joke with my friends. This is a joke, obviously. I say, you have the benefit of being under constant threat. Right. And that's not, it's really not a benefit. But because of that, you get very capable people who would normally in a society like the United States, where we're not under threat, they go into other things. They, they go to Intel, they go to, right. they become scientists, they go to universities. But in Israel, you get a lot of very good people who would be outstanding in these other professions. But because the threat to the country and their patriotism, they work on these things. Whatever criticisms one might have of Israeli political positions these days, and I have to say I'm a critic, uh, it's not unreasonable to want to defend your country. A hundred percent. And it's and you know it's appropriate. Uh, I would do it in in the situation of the Israelis, although I'd probably be also a pain in the neck with regard to uh, being outspoken politically. But that's different. <laughs> from being not wanting to, to keep your country safe. And um, so in any case, uh, the Israelis have the superb capabilities in terms of intellectual resources. So uh, they came up with the idea that they could take this technology that's basically used in air-to-air -air missiles and modify it for intercepting artillery rockets. Mm. Not an unreasonable guess. But it turns out it doesn't work. Oh. Who was responsible for creating the Iron Dome technology, the, uh, the Iron Dome itself, the United States or Israel? Did America give them the money for this? Did they supply? What exactly was the relation, the contribution the United, of the U.S.? The Israelis, as far I don't know the details of the bureaucratic history, but certainly the Israelis, without knowing it, I can be sure that the Israelis came up with the ideas. Mm -hmm. What then must have happened was that they went to the United States and they said, we could do this uh, if you fund it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they went to the right people for funding, not the right people for knowing what to do, but mm -hmm. for funding. They went to this missile defense agency uh, in the United States. The missile defense agency is a tremendously overfunded agency. It's filled with people who have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> its leadership is corrupt and uh, and literally uh, ignorant. I mean, I, I've gone around with these guys numerous times, and I've always been impressed with how little the top <laughs> people in the agency know. It's amazing to me. What branch of the military is it affiliated with? Uh, the Missile Defense Agency is an independent agency, and that, that was because... The Republican leadership, when they were pushing for missile defense, which they still do, wanted nobody competing for, for money against the missile defense agency. So they made it an independent agency, and they made it actually free from oversight. So that's another problem. So this is an agency that the American taxpayer ought to be looking at and saying, why is this still free from oversight when they have exhausted misspent so much money, tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars, probably into the hundreds of billions, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, we've got nothing for it. What was their rationale officially for creating such a expensive institution with no oversight? Well, the the problem is if you if you're in, let's say I put you in the army, mm -hmm. you know, or you're part of the army, or you're part of the air force, or whatever. What's going to happen? 
<clears throat> is other parts of the Army or Air Force are going to say, why are you taking this out of our overall budget? Because the overall, the view, whether it's correct or not, and I think it is basically correct, is that the nature of uh, congressional funding is the Army is going to get a certain amount of money, the Navy is going to get a certain amount of money, the Air Force is going to get a certain amount of money, and their job is to figure out how to spend it inside their organization. So you have, if you have this big, fat organization that's sucking up very large amounts of money and producing things that you don't think have a chance of working and also causing you to be unable to buy more planes, unable to buy tanks, unable to, you know, service your infantry, uh, you know, it becomes a problem. So you start taking money away from it. And the Congress didn't want that because the Congress was controlled by the Republicans who wanted this agency to be adequately funded no matter what, to be generously funded no matter what. Now, if in fact uh, the agency was competent, this might have been a good idea. Although oversight is always a good idea. In other words, Mm -hmm. it might have been a good idea to make them independent, but still have oversight. If the oversight is fair and just. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. If you have competent people in the oversight. Right. It always boils down to competence. Yeah, and they have no competent people in the leadership. I mean, they had one, uh, you know, we talked about this earlier that you can hear as an expert, you can hear you can understand quickly when someone's talking whether or not they know something. Mhm. And so like they had this 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 last guy they had I'm blocking his name. He's talking to the Congress. He he doesn't understand how a radar works. You know, I could see it from the way he was talking about it, describing it to the Congress. How can you have a guy who's a, a director of a big agency like that who doesn't understand how radars work? And it's not because he's a general, because I know generals and Navy Navy admirals and who do know, you know, some percentage of our officers are technically trained. Mm-hmm. And they do rise to the, you know, to the rank of general or admiral or whatever. And these guys, you know, can, if they have leadership skills, which is not always the companies, you know, they, they, they can, when they have leadership skills, lead a highly technical program. These guys in the, in the missile defense agency were jokes. And, and they, they were surrounded by people because I interacted with these people who surrounded them from various, at various times who were equally jokes. Now, at the lower level, there must be some people who know what they're doing because you have to launch a rocket. And launching a rocket is not an easy task, mm-hmm. no matter how routine it becomes. So at some level, you get down to people who are tech- technically skilled at what they do. But, of course, they have no overview, and they don't understand what the problem is. So the guy, the guy who builds rockets, he doesn't understand what the problem is with the system. If the system in the case of the strategic systems that the missile defense agency has been building it's not the rocket motor it's the problem is they can't tell a decoy from a warhead mm-hmm. and and so the guy who builds the rocket motors he's only worried about the rocket motors he's very specialized so he doesn't have an overview of the system so he doesn't understand that this system can never work because if you can never tell the difference between a warhead and a decoy it can never work so he can't, you know, so he's just building rocket motors. People, people are stovepipes. Right. And it's, you know, it's a phenomenon that's associated with uh, having a highly advanced and developed technical infrastructure. And only a few people have this ability and also uh, the general system, what we call system engineering skills to understand how it all fits together. And that's a specialized skill. And, uh, you know, so, so that's how these big organizations can succeed, actually build a rocket motor, which is complex, but actually have no chance of building a missile defense. So it's the specialties of the different people and whether you can integrate them together into a, into building a system that has a chance of working. Speaking of working, you say that the Iron Dome system doesn't work nearly as well as the Israelis claim it does. Tell, tell us yeah, about I'm, that. I'm, yeah, I'm guessing that it's well below a 5% intercept rate. I think it's probably 1% or 2%. And they claim Maybe. what? 
90, 90%. Okay. Before you explain that to us, what motive would they have to claim a 80 or 90% success rate or intercept rate if it's really yeah. like 1% or 2%? Well, the political motives are, in my view, pretty clear. Mm -hmm. From the point of view of the Israeli political leadership, they want as much as possible to calm fears in the Israeli population about the consequences of rocket attacks. So by telling people they're protected, uh, they're being protected by this system, uh, they're calming fears. Now. I don't want to sound like uh, like I'm uh, uh, unaware of the stresses and fears that these rockets generate, uh, and that I'm not sympathetic to the circumstances of the Israeli population. But the fact of the matter is that these rockets are not enormous threats uh, to life and 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 property in Israel. Uh, they carry warheads. If the warhead lands near you will kill you if it hits your house it, depending on the rocket it could do a lot of damage to your house or go into a room and kill everybody in the room Wait, now these warheads what is what do they can what's the payload what do they contain well uh the shorter range rockets are carrying maybe uh five or ten pounds of explosives plus fragments mm -hmm. plus things like ball bearings it's like, okay, like shrapnel and things like that. Shrapnel, yeah. Uh -huh. So the shrapnel is an important piece because the blast wave is very limited in range. So, But the shrapnel can kill you at uh, 20, 30, 50, 100 feet mm -hmm. if you're out in the open and you're hit by, a, you know, some ball bearings or something that are traveling at high speed. So the shrapnel is an enhancing enhances casualties and, uh, and and killing people. So that's one of the reasons why you want to, if you know a rocket's coming in, you get on the ground. It's a, the best thing to do is to get on the ground. Just lie flat if you, if you can't find a shelter. And, uh, and you know rockets are coming in because you're alerted. The Israelis have a good system of alerting people through their cell phones. Mm -hmm. So if you just get on the ground, and a rocket lands uh, maybe uh, 10 or 15 feet from you, a small rocket, uh, your chances of surviving are near 90 or 100%. Wow. If you're standing, mm -hmm. you're dead. I see. It'll kill you. All right, that's because the shrapnel is coming out in all directions, and if it hits the ground, it's uh, there's going to be a, a shadow area above the ground where the shrapnel is 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 not going to be uh you know present and uh and if you keep yourself low to the ground then you're uh you know 10 or 15 feet away so that uh you're in the cone where the shrapnel is not uh present right uh you, it'll miss you and i'm not saying you won't be shaken to the core because you have an explosion of mm -hmm. five or ten pounds of explosives that's that's not something minor 10 or 15 feet away, but you know, you'll be alive and, you know, able to live your life. And what's the maximum with the maximum weight, let's say of a payload for these rockets, the maximum weight, the longer range, uh, rockets are much more, uh, problematic. They run the ones that are arriving in, for example, Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. those are carrying warheads probably as big as 150 or 200 pounds. So that's like a small bomb. A 250-pound bomb is a is a is a kind of bomb, and if it lands on your wood frame home, it's gonna it's gonna level it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take shelter in a strong room in your home, which Israeli law requires that you have a sheltering space in every home, uh, the odds are very good unless it lands on the sheltering space that you'll survive. So. As long as you have warning, and in the case of Tel Aviv, it's, I don't know the numbers, it's, it's over a minute, because they know the, they can see the rocket launched in Gaza, and uh, they can estimate where it's going very quickly, 
they can't tell exactly where it's going, but they can tell you it's coming to Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. It's not coming to Ashkelon or some other place. So everyone in Tel Aviv gets the message. And uh, so it's a nuisance. It's terrifying. I accept that. But the odds of you being killed if you do the right thing are very, very low. And if we look at the number of deaths that have occurred from these rockets, the number I, when I last looked was about 12. Mm-hmm. May or may not have done it. It's probably around 12. I don't know why these people were killed. Because in the one case that I was aware of in 2014, there were three people killed. They were killed because they did not take shelter. Mm. They were out. It was a complicated story. But one of them was out looking at the sky because they wanted to see iron domes intercepting the artillery rockets. His mother and a neighbor came out after him saying, get into the shelter. And while they were out there arguing with him, a rocket hit the, uh, the, the, uh, the place they were standing, the balcony, and they were all killed. And because he wasn't in the shelter, right? Because he wasn't in the shelter. Ironically, had he known that the Iron Dome is probably not going to take out 80-90% of these rockets, but rather uh, right. 1% or 5%, he probably would have taken shelter. Yeah, I think being misinformed by the Israeli government caused his death. So there's a, there's a moral cost to taking this position. And somebody made that decision. Somebody knew what they were doing. Right. Let me see if I understand what what you're saying. You're saying that the main um, goal, the objective of these rockets, is not to kill people because they're not really good at that. Rather, the main well, objective like to kill people. Right. They, they right. But that's not their, what they expect to succeed by doing. They expect to that's succeed. That's not the main consequence. Of right. It, yeah. The main consequence is a disruption of the life of the Israelis. That at every any right. moment, an Israeli walking down the street can get this message on his cell phone that says, hey, and the missiles are coming. Shelter. Right. They have to run and take shelter. It's a, a fear, living in a dangerous place. That, that's what right. they... And that's the main purpose your, of these rockets. And Israel... Your government cannot protect you. Right. And Israel doesn't want anybody to know that. So they're telling people that they're taking out 80, 90% of their rockets with this um, uh, iron dome. And and really, they're not. Really, people are being saved because they're taking precautions like getting down on the ground, right? Right. But it's not the iron dome that's saving them. It's the uh, incompetence uh, of the the rockets to kill people, really. It's the limited limited damage-inflicting capability of the rockets. You know, this is, you know, like I say, if a rocket lands near you, it will kill you. There's no question. Uh, So, but taking shelter is extraordinarily effective. Very, very, very effective. The chances, one way of thinking of it is there's a lethal area on the ground associated with a given rocket impact. Mm -hmm. And that lethal area can be relatively large if you're standing. Right, And if you're lying down on the ground, that lethal area is very small. Because there's this wide cone, right? An upside-down yeah. pyramid. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, so if, uh, if, you're, if, if you're lying down, the area where this the distance at which this rocket needs to land from you is very close. And the mm-hmm. probability of that happening is just very low, just through the random statistics. Right. It could land on you and kill you anyway. No question about it. But uh, I'd be interested to know if there are any events, if they were described accurately, where that occurred. I understand there was a, was an event where I think there was a kind I didn't have a chance to follow up on it, mm-hmm. where a rocket actually hit a protected room and people were killed. That can happen. That's a very, very, very low probability. Right. If that actually happened, that was a, a, a chance event that was unavoidable in terms of the cost of life. But any other event where people failed to take shelter was an avoidable loss of life. 
So it'd be interesting to know how these people, these other people died. Right, and it's politically motivated here. I have a question. Why? So why, with all the high technology of this Python 5 missile and the advanced Israeli military technology, why indeed is the Iron Dome not working? Well, let me give you an oversimplified account. Uh, and, uh, just to, and yeah, please do. And, please do. Yeah. <laughs> imagine, a- imagine you have an object falling under the weight of gravity and aerodynamics, or an artillery rocket. Mm-hmm. And the only part of the rocket that is truly lethal is a small front end of the rocket that's maybe one foot long in a bigger rocket, two feet long. The rocket is maybe uh, uh, 10, 15 feet long. Um, the bigger rockets are certainly 15, 10, 15, even 20 feet long. And, uh, and, and now if you hit the rocket anywhere, the rocket is going to still go onto the ground and the warhead is going to still explode. You have to hit the warhead. So in other words, even if the uh, missile that's shot from the Iron Dome hits the rocket, it will probably hit it in a place that won't dismantle the warhead. The rocket will then fall and blow up wherever it is. Yeah. That's an oversimplified explanation with more detail, but I think that that might work for your audience here. Yeah, it might work and, for me too. <laughs> so, and how exactly how how exactly does the missile work? It has to make a direct hit against the rocket, the Iron Dome missile. I think I think from the data I have seen, mm-hmm. where I think I have actually seen on one, two, I think. It might be a third occasion in all the data I've gone through mm-hmm. where it looks like an artillery rocket warhead exploded. So I think there may be two or three events out of hundreds or thousands, of, you know. Right. Um, uh, in those events, it is my guess, my belief, actually, that the Iron Dome interceptor just happened by chance to run into the front end of the rocket. Just hit the front end of the rocket. Now, in order, let me let me understand this here from the from the oversimplified layman's terms, because that's exactly what I am, um, an oversimplified right. layman. They need to shoot that missile and hit that small, let's say, one foot long warhead of that rocket. Otherwise, it's not going to work. I think that's an oversimplified statement, right. but correct. In other words, if they pass. If they pass by the rocket, most of the time, what you expect to do here's the here's the system of, of here's how the intercept process is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. You fly up the trajectory, the expected trajectory of of the artillery rocket. So you're coming at it in a, in a frontal assault, and the reason you do that is because the maneuver of the artillery rocket in the lateral direction is very small. Right, I've, because right. Because it's coming on a trajectory. If so you want to hit it, if you want to hit it in a parallel trajectory, you got one little shot over there. If you want to hit it with a face-to-face trajectory, unless it goes up, down, right, or left, but you can't miss the the moments that it's going to be there. It's always in your trajectory. It's going to hit head-to-head. Right. You don't You don't have the too early or too late. Right. You don't have the too early, too late. Right. Right. You fly up the expected trajectory, and uh, you have a very sophisticated sensor on the front end of the Iron Dome interceptor, and it is designed to detect the warhead of the artillery rocket as it passes, as the artillery rocket and the interceptor pass each other. Then a little bit down the length of the Iron Dome interceptor, there's a warhead. And the Iron Dome warhead is, is then detonated so that fragments from the warhead will hit the artillery rocket warhead as it passes. Wow. Okay, question. How fast are these two projectiles going? Because you have to add up, yeah, you have to add up the 
the both the speeds to figure out how fast both of them are coming because they're coming at each other, right? Yeah, you got it right. So yeah, how fast know. how fast are these things going? So they're going they past each other. The terminology the crossing speed is uh, one and a half kilometers per second. Wait, wait, one and a half kilometers per second. What is that in feet? Uh, 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 that's about uh, five thousand feet per second. Whoa, no, whoa, no, whoa! Sorry. Five. Yeah, yeah. Five thousand feet per. Second. Wait, correct me if I'm wrong. That's about double the speed of a speeding bullet. Uh, speeding bullet is probably uh, twenty six hundred feet per second. Yeah, a bullet could be twenty. It depends on the gun. Okay, yeah, got it. So, but it's approximately double depending upon the bullet. That's crazy. So they have literally a split seconds worth uh, of time to do this. They have less than a millisecond. Less, less than, than a millisecond, thousand. right? Wow. Again, double double the speed of a bullet depends on the bullet. But that's crazy. Yeah. This fascinating. Now, now, now the the problem is that how do you know when you have a signal from the front end of the rocket? It's a pointy rocket. It's an aerodynamically shaped warhead. I, I would guess. Let me guess. I'm not a missile designer. You do, but but being that they're coming head to head, they have to get the signal before the thing hits. Right. Because they, they need time. No, they yeah, and they don't. They don't know where that signal is going to come because it's going to depend on all kinds of factors like the orientation and angle and things of that type. And they may not tell. You know, remember, if they detect the front end uh, one, uh, one tenth of a millisecond too late it's over. or two tenths of a millisecond too late, then they think the rocket is... Uh, is in a different location than it's actually in. Wow. Okay. And the I, rocket will pass by right. and they'll explode the warhead and you'll see evidence of this kind of failed intercept when you see the Israelis show you uh, a rocket casing, a motor casing, the motor casing from the rocket with holes in it from the Iron Dome interceptor. I, I, wow, I have a technical question here because I am fascinated yeah. at this speed. Now, obviously, if they're going to, if the uh, Iron Dome uh, missile is going to have to get into a parallel, a head-to-head, head-on collision position with this rocket, it, it needs some time to be in that position. It doesn't like flip 180 degrees in the air in a, in a millisecond and then get head-to-head no, head no, no, with no. it. It's... Right, so how much time does it need to know where the well, where it needs no time if if it if it's in the probabilistic, the improbable, I should say improbable, but possible situation where it's directly in front of the rocket. But then you have and to aim that physically could, runs it. Could I'm you re, could you really aim that at the trajectory at the exact right well, proper place and angle? Think, Can you do that? Think of think of shooting at a bullseye. Let's say I have darts and I'm right. throwing darts at a bullseye. Mm-hmm. A very low percentage of the time, I'll actually hit the bullseye in the middle, just probabilistically. Right. Like there's a spread around the. If if I pass by, if I'm in the first ring around the center, I pass by close. Mm-hmm. And and if I pass by close enough, and I use this timing system, and it works there's a possibility that I could put fragments from the Iron Dome interceptor into the artillery rocket warhead. But some small percentage of the time, I might actually physically hit the center of the bullseye. I got it. And that's, those are the intercepts that are resulting in, in artillery rocket explosions. And that's like the 1%. Which, which we can't see. So let me, we can't see them. So let me see if I understand this. The United States of America is... Funding this, I don't know how expensive it is. I would imagine crazy expensive uh, rocket yeah. uh, missile defense system, and is knowing that their money is not really defending against missiles. And Israel got the money yeah. from America, knowing 
that the money is going to be wasted. And it's all for the psychological, political uh, agenda of the Israelis convincing their people, yes, we can protect you. Now, they could easily tell them, you know what, look, uh, get on the ground, you know, get into your shelters, build with this money, like we'll build more shelters and stuff like that. But they don't want the Israelis to think that they live in a dangerous place. Yeah. Yeah, ironically, as insane as it sounds, uh, Israel keeps saying that whenever, uh, I don't know, some, uh, there's some anti-Semite beats up some Jewish guy on a, on a train or something, oh, it's not safe for Jews in America anymore, you got to move to Israel, which is the most dangerous place where Jews live. And yeah. they, so, so this whole thing was kind of a charade in order for Israel to be able to pretend that it's more safe than it actually is. This is... I'm not surprised, well, by the way, but is that yeah, what's it's, happening? It's still relatively safe. I, 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 I could look up the statistics and get back to you with this, but I'll bet you during the Gulf War of 91, mm-hmm. I forget how many days that was, uh, we, we looked it up at the time. There were 4,000 people died. This is 1991. 4,000 people died in Israel mm-hmm. from just the natural things that occur in the society. Oh, you mean like car old accidents age, and stuff? Yeah. That, that, car accidents, oh, yes. old age, yes, you know, right, disease, right. Mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, what, depending on how you want to count, one, two, five people right. died from uh, the attacks. Oh, I, under- so, I understand that. So, and, and so rel- it's still mm-hmm. a pretty safe place. Yeah, relatively speaking, but it's, it's safer than maybe, uh, what do you call it, Syria, I agree. But it's not safer than... New York. It's not safer than London. It's not safer than Belgium. It's not safer than Canada. But they want you I to think that it is. Yeah, I do. The stati- yeah, I, I those don't know if it st- is or not. I mean, yeah, it's, I do. It's, this- it's marginally, it's unaffected in terms of threat, you know, loss of life. It, it's deeply, it's deeply affected by the fear that is generated by these attacks. And so what the, what the, what Hamas is trying to do is succeeding because what Hamas is trying to do, they would like to kill people. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. these are not nice guys. Right. But they can't and those, they don't have the weapons to do that. Right. But what they can do is create a profound sense of insecurity in the Israeli population. And that's money. That's money in the bank. That's, political leverage. Right. And that's why Hamas is saying they think they won. I don't know if they won or not. You know, nobody wins in this kind of thing. But but from their point of view, they have succeeded in creating this fear and insecurity in the minds of many Israelis. And that's what they want to do because then the Israel they're creating an incentive for political negotiation. Right, and it's about the fear. And see, to Israel, uh, to Israel, based on their ideology, the idea that they're safe there is more important than it is anywhere else. If I'm not safe here, it's a big nuisance. You know, it's a big nuisance. And I remember yeah. when I was a little kid, every day when I went to school in uh, fifth grade, so Mr. Geyer would put on the, the blackboard uh, how many times Russia could destroy the world and how many times U.S. can destroy the world. you remember those days? Right, right, and we right, knew exactly, I was in fifth grade, how the Russians are going to shoot missiles and blow up America. It wasn't right. over the Atlantic, it was over the North Pole. And we had right. the bomb shelters, and in school we had these rehearsals, and that was a nuisance. But in Israel, it's an ideological thing that the whole country's basis for existence is safety. And they can't afford for people to think they're not safe. By the way, I just looked it up as we were speaking. In the 2015 Global Peace Index, which is an annual ranking of the world's nations on the basis of how peaceful they are, Israel was ranked number 148 out of 162. The only countries more dangerous than Israel are, get this, Libya, Ukraine, Nigeria, Russia, North Korea, Pakistan, Congo, Sudan, Somalia, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Now, Israel can't afford people to know that because not only is it bad politically, but it undermines the basis of their existence, you know? The whole idea is, okay, you have a safe haven. Safe haven? 
<laughs> they can't yeah. afford it. So yeah, they, they would probably allow uh, some more guys to get killed, the guy on a porch, or whatever, lulling them into a false sense of security uh, in order to prevent the undermining of their ideology. Right, right. But they also have the advantage of, uh, for them. I, I, I have to tell you, I, it, it wouldn't be for me, but for them, mm-hmm. they have the advantage of, uh, of being immersed in a, in a Jewish religious culture. It's not religious. Uh, well, it's more of a culture than it is religion. Yeah, I know. Point, and but, uh, you know what? And that's important to a lot of Israelis. That's important to a lot of Israelis. Yeah, it is. You know, I don't know if it's worth anybody's life, even one person. And they had like between twenty and 30,000 deaths. Well, it's, it's a personal since, choice. It's a personal. The, yeah. You know what? Yeah, you're right. But, Professor, if you're fully informed, you can make a good choice. But if you sure. think that they're, you're, you're lulled into a false sense of safety, then, you know, uh, the choice yeah. is, is, is problematic. You know, in the Six-Day War, they, they did the opposite. The Six-Day War, they told people how they were under existential threat because there they wanted, um, they wanted support from America Every you know they wanted everybody to believe that they were the David against Goliath, um, and then they yeah. told everybody that they were under existential threat, and they actually started digging graves, you know, or preparing the ground for graves because they told people yeah. that you know another Holocaust is coming, you know, and here they they tell people that the that they're safe because of this Iron Dome, and it's basically, you know. Uh, hey, professor, what would we do in this country if the government was telling us? Stuff like that. You're safe when you're really not. They are. About other things, right? <laughs> about other things, yeah. But I'm not right. worried over here. I'm not running into shelters. Tell me, how safe am I here in America? And you go, how safe am I in America, really, from well, Russia's could, missiles and Chinese missiles? By a homeless person. I, yeah, I'm not talking about the homeless people. I'm talking about missiles. You know, well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Am I safe well, then, here in New York from Russia and China, the missiles and stuff? Am I North Korea? Well, uh, you're safe from North Korea for sure because they have nothing at this point that could threaten us. But okay, you could have an accident in Russia that could kill everybody in the United States. Really? Just as we could have an accident. Yeah, because our nuclear forces are ready to launch, as are the Russian nuclear forces. The Russians are very afraid of us. Mm -hmm. This is an area... I have worked in for decades. Mm-hmm. One of my areas of research has been uh, Russian nuclear forces as well as American. And you worked in the Pentagon, and, right? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I worked for the chief of naval operations. I was a science science and, and policy technical adv- advisor to the chief. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw things that made me very nervous about uh, accidental war with Russia. I think there's a grave danger to even today of an accidental nuclear event that could lead to the destruction of the Northern Hemisphere by the American and Russian nuclear forces because both sides are poised to attack each other. And the early warning systems of both sides are not up to the job of reliably telling each other that they are safe and nothing is happening. Wow. And, and so I do think that we are... Uh, at risk, in some ways, maybe as at much risk as we were in the Cold War, because people have decided the Cold War is over, mm-hmm. and not they are not giving adequate attention to this existential threat to the Northern Hemisphere. Because if those forces go off in Russia and the United States, the Northern Hemisphere is finished as a place to live. That's crazy. So, uh, yeah, so we, we, we all live in danger all the time. And if the Russians accidentally shoot a nuclear missile at us, they won't pick up a phone and call and say, hey, we accidentally shot a nuclear missile, do something about it? Well, I think, look, the, the, portraying the Russians as irresponsible, uh, I'm not saying you're doing that. Uh, the Russians are extremely careful. Mm-hmm. I've studied the way they behave. The Russians are, in fact, much more careful than we are. Mm. All right. The Russians do not test our early warning system the way we test theirs. Mm -hmm. We have a record. We have a record 
I want to be clear, is mm-hmm. a record of flying into their air, air zones, making it look like bomber attacks are occurring, and then pulling away just to see how they'll react, how fast their reaction times. You may remember KAL 007, mm-hmm. this terrible tragedy. Well, at the time that occurred, we were regularly invading Russian airspace, making it look like they were under attack. And KAL 007 was a completely different event where there was an accident in setting the, co- the GPS coordinates in the, by the commercial airliner. And these poor guys, these poor people got caught up in the, in the Russian overreaction to American prodding them. Right. Just, I just want to give so, out my, my listener uh, a short summary of what KAL 007 was. In 1983, there was Korean Airlines Flight 007. That's why it's called that. It was going from New York City to Korea through Alaska. And in 1983, I don't remember the exact date, the South Korean airliner uh, was shot down by a Russian, uh, by a Russian uh, army. Was Fire it an army vessel? An interceptor. Okay, Russian inter- shot down by a, an aircraft interceptor. An, an, an aircraft interceptor by a Russian aircraft interceptor. Okay, it was a seven forty-seven, right? That's right. Right, killed okay. a lot of people. Yeah, and and um, and I was in the Pentagon shortly before that event. Mm-hmm. I had already left the Pentagon to go to Stanford when it occurred. But uh, but I witnessed and was very concerned about the you know, bragging by uh, uh, a Navy admiral about how the U.S. would would run a, a battle group off Kamchatka in complete radio silence, so the Russians would have no idea we were there because their surveillance was not up to the job like our surveillance would be. And then flying at their air defenses, and then breaking off, just tweaking them just to see, you know, what they'll do. Mm-hmm. This guy was bragging about it, and I remember saying to myself, "How stupid can you be?" But of course, you know, what could I do about it? And KAL almost driven was the result of this of this screwing around. Wow, how stupid can you be is a rhetorical question. Yeah. So, and we were doing that. So that was 83 already. That right. was a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what we're still doing. We may have backed off. I had an incident in um, in the 1990s. I can even send you the letters I wrote. Mm-hmm. Where I um, I was talking to a Russian uh, vice admiral, uh, uh, rear admiral, who's rear admiral, who has been a commander of Russian forces in... Uh, Murmansk, where they have their um, their uh, their Atlantic submarine fleet deployed from there, mm-hmm. and he told me that they were having problems with American Los Angeles class submarines coming into Russian waters while they were destroying uh, uh, rockets, uh, according to the START Treaty. What they would do is they bring a uh, a submarine out. This was agreed to. This was a treaty. They they would have observers. So we Americans had observers on ships, and and the and the Russians would launch one of these rockets with the first stage, just launch them out of 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 the of the submarine, and they'd fall into the water and they'd basically be destroyed. This was a, an agreed method for destroying these Russian submarine launch ballistic missiles mm-hmm. the, by the treaty. And they had, on a regular basis, American Los Angeles-class submarines coming into Russian waters, invading their waters. And they actually uh, detected one, and they dropped grenades on it. And um, so it was a very—and I went through the roof when I heard about this, because we were supposed to be normalizing relations with the Russians. This was after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, and I made them, you know, I, I called a friend of mine, uh, uh, his name is Jim Goodby. If you knew our people our Jim Goodby was our ambassador who negotiated the confidence and security, uh, 
confidence and security measures agreement for Europe during the Cold War. So Jim is a, an old hand in arms control. Mm-hmm. And I called up Jim and I asked him if he would co-sign a letter with me uh, uh, to the appropriate people in the U.S. government to tell them this was happening. Because, you know, it's it, it's possible it was happening uh, without knowledge of upper level people. Because, you know, these things happen. And we wrote these letters and we got smoke blown at us, blown at us from the State Department. Hmm. And finally, I wrote uh, the uh, Senate uh, Majority Leader, I'm forgetting his name now, but he was, uh, I think, from Montana, uh, I forget. Uh, anyway, he, he was, uh, it was a Democrat at the time, and all of a sudden it stopped. And incidentally, nobody contacted us about it. The bastards never even told us, the Americans. What, what year was this about? I could look it up. I'm thinking 92, 93, maybe 94, right? Okay. Somewhere in this time. Uh, I could look up the letters. I have them. But these guys just blew smoke at us. So this is my government. I'm getting angry as I, as I talk to you. So here we are in a situation where the Russians are moving toward the West or look like they're trying to turn toward the West. We've had the collapse of this dangerous Soviet political entity, Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which was dangerous. And we had, um, I don't know, we may have had Yeltsin in power then, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, and here we are, uh, in, the Russians are abiding by this treaty. There are American observers there. And son of a gun, we have our own submarines invading Russian waters. How does that tell you about American behavior? And then, now people say, well, this guy, Putin, is an implacable enemy. Well, he is. Putin is a real problem. And get, let me tell you why. It's because of American behavior in the 90s. And, and afterwards, mm-hmm. Putin was trying to build, I, I'm not saying he's a nice guy. I'm not saying he would be anti-democratic in Russia, but we don't have to have an implacable enemy like we now have if we had behaved differently. Mm-hmm. And I am damn angry about it because it was the Americans that did this. Sorry. So that's another, another story. All right. For another time. Professor, For another time. Professor Postal, you are absolutely fascinating. <laughs> thank you so I'm much. I'm hated, though. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on. You're very welcome. I'll dig up those letters and I'll send them to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Committing High Reason. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating review. For the latest from Rabbi Shapiro and to sign up for his newsletter, head on over to committinghighreason.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.